This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and life questions and anything on your heart. All we need you to do is to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Great to be with you today. We don't have anything to talk about scheduling-wise, so let me get right to some questions. My first question is an anonymous one. Uh, It says, before I got saved, I was a stripper and a part-time prostitute. Will God allow me to marry in the future, or am I stuck being single? I deserve it, but would like to be married one day. Anonymous, um... I took this question out of order just because uh, your your heart is so clear here. You know, the best thing about being saved, the very best thing, is that if anyone, whether it's a stripper or a prostitute, is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And the challenge is for you to believe that. The old is gone and the new has come. I got to tell you, I wasn't a stripper. Nobody would have wanted to see that. But believe me, I did far worse things before I got saved than you're guilty of. And yet Jesus washed them all away. His blood cleanses them all. Um, Anonymous, I I have this picture in my head. Crystal Lewis used to sing a song called The Bloodstained Pages. And... Um, you know, in heaven, there are going to be books about our lives opened. Uh, we we all have one. And when those books are opened to be examined, in her song, she said, every page was so stained with blood that the accusations against us couldn't be discerned. And that means your book and my book, all of that old, ugly stuff is gone. And now that you're a Christian, you are a daughter of the king, You belong to the best family in the history of families and the history of the world. And God wants you to enjoy it. So yes, he will allow you to marry. And you need to get over the I deserve it. That desire to be married has been put in your heart by God. 
And because it's been put in your heart by him, it's a desire that he's going to fulfill. So here's how you prepare for it. You walk with Jesus today. You get so close to him, you learn everything that you can about him. You remember that the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when those lies start coming into your mind, you know, you can identify that it's the devil that's whispering them or shouting them at you. And then just refuse to listen. Take those thoughts captive. But fall in love with Jesus. Walk with him. Serve him. And he'll take you places. Believe me, there are places you don't want to miss. So let's get this settled. Your sin, stripper, part-time prostitute, those sins are thrown in the deepest, darkest ocean. Satan would go fishing to try to dredge them up. But your responsibility is to leave them in that deepest, darkest ocean, as far from you as east is from west. And so that's not who you are anymore. So serve Jesus. Serve the Lord. God bless you. Uh, enjoy the freedom from your past. That's, I said earlier, that my favorite thing uh, about the Lord. I have freedom from my past. You know, somebody walked into my church, and by the way, this happened. Uh, it's it's probably been 12 or 15 years now, but but one day after service, there was this woman walking up the the uh, aisle, and, and she was kind of staring at me and looking, and finally she got about, I don't know, five, six feet away from me, and she said, by God, it is true. And I said, well, what? And she goes, God can make a preacher out of a car salesman. This girl worked for me before I got saved. In Phoenix, Arizona, she worked for me. She knew me as a jerk. And then she was able to walk in and see that God changes things. So accept the fact that he changes things for you. What you deserve is a relationship with Jesus that will be richer and fuller than you ever imagined. So um, get rid of all of the condemnation and deal with it as often as you have to? Good, good question. Rhonda wants to know, can one be a Christian and support abortion? Yeah, Rhonda, I think one can be a Christian and support abortion, at least as a brand new believer. I think it's impossible. As the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, I think it's impossible that your position wouldn't change. So um, it is possible. But again, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, he's going to convince you of his position on these things, and Christians simply cannot support murder. It's that simple. So, yeah, you can start out being pro-abortion. You can, you can trumpet women's rights all you want. But you see, when, when Jesus comes and lives in you, he sort of takes over. And he begins the process of changing you. And I think, Ron, to anybody who who remains pro-abortion certainly isn't somebody who has actually met Jesus. They may know about him. Um, They they may be involved in church, but their heart hasn't been transformed. So a brand new Christian, yes, can be um, pro-abortion. You know, our opinions and views don't change all at once. But I think anybody who's been a Christian, a real Christian, if they've really met Jesus for any length of time at all, 
then they've moved away from those ungodly positions, uh, those positions that entertain sin. So um, I get frustrated. We're past the election time now, Rhonda, but I get frustrated from time to time when I'll hear people who say they've been Christians for years and years and years and and they're um, supportive of things that that they just shouldn't be able to support if, in fact, they really met Jesus. I keep saying this to our church all the time, Rhonda. When you meet Jesus, you change. It changes everything. Now, for some people, it changes very quickly. It did for me. But for others, it changes much more slowly. I always say that God will change us as fast as we let him, but the fact is you got to change. Uh, if somebody was a, a drunk uh, and they really meet Jesus, that's going to change. If somebody's doing drugs, smoking marijuana, they really meet Jesus, that's going to change. Well, how much more with the murder of the unborn? So, Rhonda, I hope that makes sense to you. Matthew says, in an earlier program, you said Calvinists and non-Calvinists cannot get along in leadership. But I disagree because the SBC, the Southern Baptist Conference, makes it work. Matthew, you don't know much about the Southern Baptist Conference because uh, the Southern Baptist Conference is being ripped apart by the non-Cals against the Calvinists. And, uh, you know, the the Cals and the Neo-Calvinists um, are, are, are have been for now the 25 years I've been say or 25 years I've been here. Um, you know they've they've been sort of infiltrating the ranks and taking what were really solid churches and turning them into Calvinist churches, Reformed churches. And uh, it is uh, it is a battle that goes on every time there is a leadership uh, choice to be made. Uh, they're 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 battling one another tooth and nail. So, um, no, it can't work. And I was talking, Matthew, that question was directed at me and our church here. Somebody asking, would I have a Calvinist as a pastor or as an elder, somebody in a position of leadership? And the answer was absolutely not. Um, These are non-essentials as it relates to our faith. However, um, when it comes to walking together in unity, I think they're really essentials. So again, not essentials in terms of, of whether or not we're saved, but essential in the sense that how can a church have a plot, uh, have a path uh, to walk uh, if they don't know where they're going? And it's, it's, it's that simple. So this is a big deal. I've watched churches, Matthew, ripped apart by Calvinists, and that's what's happening in the Southern Baptist Conference as well. So um, that's the best response I can give you to that one. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Phil. He says, In Mark 8, verse 5, why did Jesus ask the disciples how many loaves of bread they had instead of just creating the bread instantly. He could have done that. Um, um, you know, ideally, Phil, he could have done anything. 
But this was a really important lesson. This is the feeding of the 5,000. It's um, a miracle that's mentioned in every one of the gospel accounts. Um, but, but when they wanted something to eat, the Lord said, or these people are hungry, send them away. Jesus looked at him. This is not Mark's gospel, but another gospel. And he said, you give them something to eat. John's gospel, they answered, well, where are we going to get enough to buy all these people food? And talked about how, how many days' wages that would take. Well, what Jesus was doing here, and this is a really important thing for you and me to apply, what Jesus was doing, Phil, was saying, um, you know, whatever you have, if you're with me, if you're in my will, if my power rests with you, whatever you have is enough. Whatever you've got on you, let's just use that. So this was a miracle. Sure, Jesus could have just made a gourmet meal for all those people. But instead, he wanted the disciples to participate. He wanted them to hand the food to the people. So he said, how much do you have here? And they said, well, we got a, a couple of fish and we got uh, some loaves of bread. Well, you feed them then. And the idea was now they're going to have to exercise faith. Can you imagine a hungry crowd of people and the disciples with their hands out and Jesus putting little crumbs, a little bit of fish and a little tiny bit of, of, uh, of bread in their hands and saying to them, okay, go feed them. And they know the minute they turn their back, there's no food. The people are hungry. But somebody had to take that first step. And I personally believe it was Peter, but that's just my opinion. And when they saw the food beginning to multiply, they were involved in one of the greatest miracles ever. And it wasn't just them watching Jesus, it was them participating with Jesus. Here's the point, Phil. Jesus wants us to participate in the work that he's doing. When Paul and I first came here to San Antonio 25 years ago, um, we didn't have anything. I mean, we went hungry. I mean, really, really hungry. People kept asking us, so how are you going to start a church? How are you going to eat? How are you going to pay rent? We didn't have any of the, the answers to those questions. But here's what we knew. We knew we had to get here. Jesus said he would be waiting for us here. And that means we got to participate on a day-by-day basis in this miracle that he was doing for us. Now, it wasn't a miracle like healing the whole world or, or, or raising the dead. But for us, it was a miracle that proved that when Jesus tells us to do something, we do it without worrying about whether or not we have anything to do it with. I hope that makes sense to you. So often when we know what God wants us to do, so often we'll, we'll hesitate because, well, we, we can't figure out how it's going to work. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. Who am I to do this or who am I to do that? And instead, Jesus just says, hey, turn around and go. And if we'll turn around and go, Phil, God will use us in ways that we never dreamed possible. So that's why that miracle was different. It's also why um, Jesus made sure that the disciples had seven, uh, I'm sorry, 12 basketfuls left over, overflowing basketfuls. Each one of the disciples took their own personal souvenir home with them from that day. I imagine that basketful of bread scraps would, would have sat in their rooms. They would have thought, wow, I'll never forget that. And of course, then they later forgot it with the feeding of the 4,000. But that's the point. Whatever you have, when Jesus asks you to do something, you have enough. 
may not make sense to you, just like it didn't make sense to them. But when they turned around and that food started multiplying, all I can think about is, boy, I wish I was there. That would have been great. Good question, Phil. Thank you very much. Let's go to our friend George in California on line one. George, thanks for calling. You're on the radio. Yes, hello, Pastor Ron. Yeah, I know I called yesterday, but I had one more question. I thought I'd just make it two days in a row here. Uh, the phones have been quiet, George. It's okay. Oh, okay then. Um, well, okay. It, um, well, let's see. We know we have the, the Trinity, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Ghost, um, you know, three three in one. Um, if someone is praying and they really, just really, really want to pray hard and they maybe with a contrite heart, is it appropriate or is it okay to just somehow ask Jesus, can you can you ask the Father to do this? And, you know, without diminishing anything Jesus is, I know it's kind of a weird question, but I just kind of wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah. Um, George, no, there's nothing wrong with asking. In fact, when Jesus said to his disciples, up to now you've asked nothing in my name but now, and, and what he's talking about, when I've made the way, you can ask anything in my name. And if it's in God's will, it will be done. And so that's Jesus in his role as an intercessor for us. And um, um, Jesus is, is always interceding for us, Hebrews chapter 7 says. And, and uh, we ask in his name, and I don't mean in a formula like in Jesus' name, but I mean we ask based on who he is and what he's accomplished for us. And so, yeah, we can ask Jesus um, to, to go to the Father. That's sort of his function. Now, that's not the only way we can pray. We can pray directly to the Father. We can pray directly to the Son. We can pray directly to the Holy Spirit. There's no competition between the persons of the Trinity. They can do anything and everything, and they're, they're completely in unity. And uh, so it really doesn't matter. Um, Jesus allows us access to God so that our prayers can be heard. And when our prayers are heard, because they're in the will of God, Jesus said that we have what we ask for. Now, that doesn't mean it always comes right at that moment, but any prayer in the will of God, Jesus has made the way for us to go and make that request. So I think that is very effective. Now, George, you may have heard me say this before, but as for me personally, uh, I talk to Jesus all the time. Um, The Father sent Jesus so we could understand the Father, who he was his character, his holiness, his nature. Jesus then said when he's going, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to testify about him. So um, that's why I talk to Jesus. It's very personal. Jesus is human like we're human. Now, obviously, he's God and we're not, but he's human just like we're human. Uh, He was tempted in all ways as we ourselves have been tempted, yet without sin. Jesus understands us. He empathizes with us. He's experienced to a greater degree all of the trials and temptations that any of us would experience. And so it just, to me, makes a lot of sense to talk to Jesus, and it personalizes the relationship. One other thing, George, that you didn't ask, but I think it's germane to this conversation, is uh, when we pray and just talk to God, a general G God, um, it's, it's really impersonal. Um, God is a spirit. We can't even think what he's like. No one can approach him. He lives in unapproachable light. Well, Jesus puts us in that unapproachable light. 
And so he personalizes those prayers. So that's why talking to Jesus, praying to Jesus, that's why that is so important because it, it recognizes that we have this deeply personal relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the only way that it can happen. So, George, thank you. And you can call anytime you want and appreciate that you're still listening from California. Well, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure, George. God bless you. We'll see you. Here, here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, why do you think there are so many failed or failing Christian marriages? Do you think there's one key? Um, no, there's a lot of keys uh, uh, to, to failed Christian marriages. But let me tell you, anonymous, uh, I think this is one of the reasons that our witness has been so compromised. You know, when Christians were vocally uh, opposing gay marriage, um, we did it without any real standing. I mean, we have the Word of God. We have the Word of God, um, and we can stand on that for sure. And gay marriage is wrong, period. But um, you can imagine how the enemies of God would look at us and say, oh, and it's because you Christians have such good and holy marriages that, that you can oppose us. Their response is, why should we listen to you? And um, I think our, our, the state of marriage among uh, Christians is a disgrace. And um, I think it's, it's something that needs to be addressed regularly from pulpits. There's plenty of opportunities as you teach through the Bible uh, to talk about it. I'm not talking about doing marriage conferences or anything. I'm just talking about teaching you know, how God views the sanctity of marriage and, and what our roles are. I mean, he seems to me to go out of his way to, to, to tell us step by step how to ensure that we succeed. So um, it, is a, it is a tragedy among Christians. Now, when you ask if there's one key, um, I, I can't isolate one. So let me just tell you a couple of things. I think we are biblically illiterate People go to churches, they get sermons preached at them, um, um, but, but we don't really learn the Bible. And if you're reading the Bible, you're going to learn just how Jesus values marriage and the price he paid that we could be married in Christ. I think we're biblically illiterate. I don't think we're getting solid doctrinal teaching. Secondly, I think our flesh um, instead of being controlled by the spirit that lives in us, we're letting our flesh take control. And, and basically, we're selfish. Um, men, I say this in our church all the time, they know I love them, I can say this. Um, men are jerks. You know, we, we don't love unconditionally. Love is patient, love is kind, love is all the other things that First Corinthians 13 says, love always trusts, love keeps no record of wrongs. We humans... We keep all kinds of records of wrongs. We want our spouses, men and women, want our spouses to do what we want them to do instead of understanding that our role is to serve our spouses. doesn't matter whether you're the male or the female. We're to serve them. We're not to expect anything from them. If we don't like them, we try to change them. We try to manipulate them. And the Bible says that's exactly the opposite thing to do. First Peter says, um, women, 
win your husbands over by your behavior without a word. And so I think, um, honestly, anonymous, those are the biggest reasons, um, along with this last one, we just don't really care. We're selfish. We don't really care what God says. If we're not happy, we're going to let everybody know it, and we're going to keep letting everybody know it. And the status of marriages between Christians is shameful. Imagine the things that children who live in your homes have heard moms and dads, their mom and dad, say to one another and about one another. Imagine the yelling and the fighting. It's unconscionable. And yet, um, you know, to, to talk about it, even, even pastors, I'll uh, be hearing pastors teach, and it's like, well, you know, we're just human. We're going to argue sometimes. We should never, ever be okay with arguing. We should never accept that. What, do we get a pass to be in the flesh because we're humans? Jesus said, I came that you might know how to deal with these things. And honestly, Anonymous, um, we have lost the authority of our witness when it comes to marriage because we marry and divorce, uh, we cheat, we do, we lie to our spouses uh, just like the unbelieving world does. And I, I personally think that's got to change. Revival is going to have to change it. Hey, well, we've got 30 minutes left. The phones have been quiet. We'd love to have your call, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, the 210-340-9585. Here is a question from Seth. He said, Pastor Ron, is there a way to know for sure I've been called into ministry? Um, Seth, we've all been called into ministry. Now, I think I know what you mean into pastoral ministry or music ministry or a specific ministry. Um, but, but one of the things to remember is that every Christian is called into ministry. Um, you know, church is not a spectator sport. You're, you're to use the gifts that God has given you um, in his body in a local church. Uh, so from a general perspective, we've all been called into ministry specifically, um, you, you know, I, I had the same kind of question, Seth. I was six months old in the Lord when I knew I was called to be a pastor. And it seemed so impossible to me. Uh, my, my, I'm, I'm six months in the Lord, all of my sins, I'm still dealing with horrible consequences. And I have more questions and answers and, and walked around afraid all the time. And I just thought, well, well, yeah, could this be true? And then somebody tell me, said, uh, Ron, do you really think that 
the devil called you to be a pastor? To start studying the Bible? And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. So here's what you do, Seth. If you even suspect you've been called into ministry, you step out and you start doing it. But do it at a level where you are, around who you are and where you are. In other words, if your ministry is evangelism, start sharing Jesus with people. If your ministry is to be a pastor, um, then, then, then start loving people, start really caring about them, praying for them. Start really, really devouring your Bible. And God will honor all those things. But but this is a question that I get asked a lot from people. And you know what the, the thing to do is take the step of faith and go. Just go. Let God direct your steps. You just agree. Um, it's what we did when we left California 25 years ago and came out here. I had no idea how to start a church, but uh, I just knew I was going to start teaching the Bible. And and I thought, of course, it would be people, but the Lord spoke to my heart um, in that first month we were here and said, well, start teaching Paul and teach her the book of Romans. And so that's what I did, just me and her. And, um, you know, you've got to take those little baby steps and then let God bless them and he will raise you up. Now, don't become impatient. It doesn't happen quickly. There's a lot of work that God is going to do. And Seth, if you're married, I tell all the guys, and I think our church, we've planted, I don't know, 33 or 34 churches out of our church now. And um, I tell all of our guys that, that the first two years are really going to be about the Spirit working on you and your wife, making sure that you're walking as one in agreement with, with him, with Jesus. And so he's got to build a foundation in you before he can trust you with people that he really loves. God's not impatient. He's not in a rush. We've got to let him do that work. But Seth, be faithful in whatever you do. Do all things as unto the Lord. And nurture your individual relationship with Jesus. It's very important. Get to know him. Think like him. Um, Find out more and more every day about who he is and what he's like. If you have been called into pastoral ministry, it is an unbelievable honor and privilege. And I can just tell you, you don't want to miss it. So take the steps of faith. Be obedient. Here's a really nice question from Sandra I got today. Uh, Pastor Ron, I went to your doctor's office recently and have a question. Why do you call it Malta Medical? Then she says, I was treated exceptionally well there. It really was wonderful. Sandra, thank you very, very much. I love to hear those things. Of course, the truth is I expect that the people that go there are going to be treated wonderfully. You know, we give people um, a lot of time. Most doctors don't. Uh, Our doctors are going to share Jesus with you and they're going to pray for you. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, why do we call it Malta Medical? Um, in Acts chapter 28, after the shipwreck, the, 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 the people that left the ship and made it to the beach, they found themselves on the island of Malta. Paul was there, Luke was there, um, and in Malta, uh, they were treated exceptionally well. And 
um, the chief official's father was sick. And uh, he was miraculously healed by the Apostle Paul. And then it says, the rest of the sick in the island were healed. And it was a different word. It's the, the Greek word that we get our English word therapeutic from, which means that Dr. Luke was the one who was treating the people. And they were being healed by the power of God, but, but in cooperation with the physician that was there. He was caring for them just the way we care for people at Malta Medical. And so it just made a whole bunch of sense to me to call it Malta Medical, and that's how we named it a long time ago. I think this is our ninth year. Well, yeah. Yeah, uh, our ninth year uh, of, of being open, and it's been such an unbelievable blessing. Uh, lives have been saved. Physically, people come in in really bad shape, and, and through prayer, our doctors are, are able to treat them and diagnose them. It's really great diagnosing with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen literal miracles. Um, but but like Luke on the island of Malta, um, the, the real thrill is having physical contact with the patients and, uh, and watching as, as uh, we care for them, share Jesus with them, and the Holy Spirit then goes to work. So, Sandra, thank you very, very much. And by the way, we've got another ministry, I, I hope, that's going to be started pretty soon. Um, we're, we're waiting for some money because we've got to buy a lot of stuff. But um, it's also going to be named out of uh, Acts chapter 28. It's a free restaurant, not not just a little soup kitchen or... or um, a cafeteria, not anything like that, a really nice restaurant. Um, and we're going to call it Unusual Kindness. And that's when Paul says we were, uh, the, the King James says, we, the, the islanders treated us uh, with no usual kindness. And we just sort of modified that to make it unusual kindness. So uh, both of our free ministries in that regard are going to be um, named out of Malta, or out of Acts chapter 28. Thank you, Sandra, and I'm glad you got to go and glad you were treated well. Let's go to Dorian from San Antonio on line one. Dorian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, how's it going? Going well, thank you. Good, good. So I have a, a question for you. <clears throat> um, I know Romans 10 and 9, um, if we proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior and ask Him to save us and, and knowing that we can't save ourselves, that um, when we die, that he promises to save us. Um, and I know that other, other thing, the absent from the body, present with the Lord. Um, with that being said, my faith ensures that I'm saved. But with the other thing is, how do you ensure that, that you really are saved? And, and cause, cause there's another verse and I'm going top the top of my head that says, Lord, Lord, mm-hmm. um, I did this for you, that for you, in my own vernacular, right? Um, and and I don't want to be that person. And, uh, and I, yeah. I want to hang up and just listen to you talk. Thank you, Dorian. I appreciate that. And God bless you. Um, um, that, that's a good thing that you want to be certain of for sure. Now, Romans 10, 9, we have, to, we have to read that. This isn't just that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord. Anybody can say that. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he was talking to the religious leaders uh, when he was warning them. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. So they, they, they have a professed faith, but it isn't a real faith. And that's why in Romans 10.9, Paul adds, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the confession of the mouth, Jesus said the things that come out of our mouth come out of our mouth, but having first been in our hearts. So what Paul is saying here, Dorian, is that if you confess with your mouth what your heart truly believes, that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you believe that he died for our sins, and that he was raised from the dead. That's sort of the exclamation point of the validation that, that Jesus had the authority to make those statements. He's saying, then you will be saved. So here's how you can know for sure that you're saved. When you give your heart to Jesus, you, you meet him. It's a, it's a transaction. This is where the relationship begins. You say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. You come into my heart. Well, that's when the Holy Spirit, Dorian, is given to you as a deposit. Sort of like Jesus giving you earnest money to make sure that you understand this deal is going to be completed. That it's up to him and not up to you. So what you do is the Holy Spirit comes in. He is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And you know on that day, you will be with Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of reasons that we have doubt. When uh, we sin, the enemy's right there to condemn us. Um, so here's what you need to know, and, and this is where you need to be honest. When you sin, is it like, oh, I know I shouldn't have done that, but, but you're going to keep doing it? That's not real confession. Jesus is Lord, meaning he is not a general Lord. He is your Lord. And when you sin, Dorian, if you hate it, it's because the Holy Spirit lives in you and your inheritance in heaven is guaranteed. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So if your life is characterized by obedience, I'm not talking about being perfectly obedient. Nobody is. But if you want to be perfect, and, and the fact that we can't be perfect shouldn't stop any, anybody or everybody from wanting to be perfect. When you know that for sure, um, then then you have no doubts about your salvation. And that's what you need to do. So, Dorian, two things. One, spend more time with Jesus, and that doubt will be taken away. The enemy will, will keep trying to bring it, but, but the Holy Spirit will, will convince you that Jesus is not only going to do what he promised, he's the author and the finisher of your faith, but that, that you're in cooperation, you're in partnership with him. The other thing you need to do, and the enemy's going to keep bringing these lies, so you really need to dig into your Bible. Really, really, really read your Bible. Let me give you um, a suggestion. Read the first three chapters of Ephesians six, eight, ten times. When you understand what God has done for you, that doubt that you have will go away. I've been saved for almost 30 years. It'll be 30 years in February. And I've never had one moment, not one instant of doubt about my salvation. The enemies tried to bring it to me, but I just, the issue settled. The issue is settled. So, read the first three chapters of Ephesians. 
whole bunch of times. Won't take you too long. It's not that much. If you don't understand something, don't really worry about it. Just sort of file it away. But keep reading it. Repetition is so important. And pretty soon, all of the assurances that you need are going to be given to you by the Lord. Dorian, thank you for that. And I can tell you one thing for sure. God wants you to be um, certain, absolutely certain of your salvation. Let's go to Jimmy on the line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Oh, I'm so tired of this world. But I was going to tell you that... Um, <laughs> um, um, What's blind faith? Somebody told me that blind faith. What is blind faith? Uh, somebody told you I had blind faith? No, no. Somebody told me that they have blind faith. And they're trying oh. to teach me on this. And I, I was trying to look it up, but I didn't see nothing in the Bible talking about blind faith. Yeah. The only thing they, yeah, Jimmy, the, the, yeah, that, that's because there is nothing in the Bible about blind faith. <laughs> Our faith is based on, on evidence. Our faith is based on um, our Bibles, uh, the perfect Word of God. But you see, by definition, it can't be blind faith because our faith is based on a person, a living person who who walked this earth, who was murdered, he didn't stay dead. Those are historical facts that we have. Blind faith is 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 really sort of to check your brains into the door. Now, what I suspect, Jimmy, and I don't know this to be true, but what I suspect is that this person is uh, somebody who goes to a, uh, a faith church or a prosperity church, whatever you want to call it, and uh, you know they're they're work up goosebumps and shouting and spitting and and uh, yeah, we just believe our faith is great, but that's not even real faith. Real faith is um, Hebrews. Chapter 11, um, being certain of what we do not see, um, faith is, is based on what we know happened and then what we know happens in us. That he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. That he's with us every day, that he will never leave us or forsake us. That's not blind faith. That's faith based on the promises that Jesus has already made to us. So uh, there really isn't anything biblically that would support blind faith. Now, I will say this, and and Paula has said this many, many times, Jimmy. Um, You know, Paula didn't have to wrestle with scientific fact. Uh, When the Bible says, in the beginning, God, and and then we go on and we read that God created everything in six days, that Adam and Eve were created by the finger of God and, and were the first two humans, Paula said, you know, I just believe that. And there's a lot of people that are envious of that. I wish I, I had I had so many questions. I had to find out that there were answers to my questions. Paula didn't have those questions. And so she just read it. The Spirit of God convicted her that it was true. And then she's just never not believed it since. So that's not blind faith. That's a work of the Spirit. Uh, and then Paula's faith, of course, is based on on the things that we've done, the things that we've seen, the experiences that we've had with the Lord. Uh, but but believe me, there's nothing blind faith about it. Um, I, I think it's, it's likely true, Jimmy, that people that would call it blind faith know nothing about Jesus, really, and know nothing about what faith really is. 
Faith is tough, tested. It's supposed to be hard. And every time that we believe and God shows off for us, we just believe a little bit more. So, Jimmy, I hope that makes sense. 340-9585. Here is an anonymous question. This one hurts my heart. Um, Pastor on our church has been mostly closed since March. How long should I wait before finding another church? Anonymous, if you're healthy and you're not in a in a health risk group, um, then you shouldn't wait any longer. You should be in church. Um, you may decide to go back to your old church when they open, if they open again. Um, but, um, you know, uh, you need to be in fellowship. You need to be in church, period. And the churches, I said to your question, breaks my heart uh, to, to see churches closing. Um, many churches have been closed since March um, or, or doing very abbreviated uh, ministry work, um, depending on electronics and doing things online. Um, you know, that's not the church. It's great to have electronics. It's great to have technology. Uh, wonderful to be able to teach the Bible and have people tuning in. But it's still not church. The church is a local body of believers. Fellowship, koinonia, is, is touching one another. And that's what church really is. So I wouldn't wait at all. You know, Anonymous, one of the things that's happened here, we've been uh, open most of the time. We were like everybody. I think we closed the first nine weeks um, going back to March when, when uh, we were asked to by our governor. Um, then when he permitted it, um, uh, we reopened um, w- under the guidelines that they required. Uh, and then we here at Calvary Chapel, we had an outbreak of COVID-19. Um, you know, we had 50 people or so that that got sick. All of them recovered, and it wasn't a, a, a big deal. There's some who, who are still suffering from long-term effects, a few, but um, but people recovered. Um, and, and when we, it was in June, toward the end of June, when we had that outbreak, so we closed for two weeks so we could we could make sure everything was clean and people had gone through the quarantine period. And then we opened again. We've been open ever since. Now, one of the things that's happened, um, Anonymous, is that um, we're getting new people from other churches every single week now. Every single week. Um and and you know I just I don't think that's healthy. I'm I'm grateful that people are coming here, but um, I think a lot of churches are going to find out that their people aren't going to be there when they come back. And I, I just I just find that to be sad. Here is a question from Reuben. It says, "How should Christian parents view public school education?" Reuben, I don't want to give you a bunch of opinions here. Um. um this is a matter that every parent needs to be in diligent prayer about. Um, I told Paula just last week, I think, time goes so fast I can't remember exactly, but um, I just told her I, I'm, I'm not sure I can support Christian parents uh, putting their children in public schools any longer. Uh, and that's a big reversal for me because I was always the one who said, you know, if you if you feel like your kids need to be in public school, the unsaved kids need need Christian kids in public school. So yeah, let's turn it into a field of evangelism. But now, uh, Reuben, um, they're they're so anti God, and they're so pro 
um, anything and everything, homosexuality, pro-transgender. Um, they're, they're, they're keeping information from parents willfully. Um, they, you know, when, when they started doing the distance learning, uh, one of the things the teachers' union complained about, there was a big, big series of articles. Uh, some teacher in Philadelphia, an administrator in Philadelphia, um, let it slip out on social media that that the teacher's biggest concern was that now, because at home the parents would be looking over the shoulders of the kids and find out what they're teaching their kids. That's scary. That's really, really scary. So um, um, I'm, I'm almost driven to that point where um, I just can't, with any confidence, um, tell people that that yeah, it's okay to put your children in public school. Again, this is um, between parents and the kids, and it's something that needs to be really, really prayed to. Last question for the day. Michael said, uh, Jesus said his house is a house of prayer. Do you think there's enough emphasis on prayer in our churches? Michael, uh, I do not think there is enough emphasis on prayer. Uh, more important than emphasis, I don't believe there is enough practice uh, on on prayer in our churches or among Christians. I honestly don't believe that the overwhelming majority of Christians actually believe that prayer has any value. Now, we say we do, but we don't practice it. I don't know any Christian who would say, well, I don't, I don't see the value in prayer. Um, we know we're supposed to know better than that. But here's the thing. Christians don't practice prayer. And I'm not talking about getting in a closet and on your knees and spending hours and hours and hours. But prayer, Paul said, pray without ceasing. It just means that everywhere he went, walking with Jesus, he was in prayer. Uh, I have conversation going with the Lord all day long. And I, and I think we need to understand that. So it's very important that we individually value prayer the way God values it. We don't have to understand how it works. Jesus said to pray. We see examples in the Bible of prayer moving the heart and the hand of God. If you are a man or woman of prayer, then you've seen God's hand move in your life. You know, Michael, we have a Saturday morning corporate prayer here at Calvary Chapel, 9.30 to 10.30 every Saturday. Um, Paula and I are there. If, if we're in town, which is 90% of the time, we're always there. Uh, and, and um, you know, we've got a really good group of people, and the prayer is changing lives and, and people seeing the hand of God move. Now, the problem is um, the overwhelming majority of the church misses it. They just don't value it enough to take an hour on a Saturday to pray. And I think that is a shame. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a privilege to be able to come to you. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel 
of San Antonio.